Well, good morning. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm one of the pastors here at Genesis. I am so looking forward to that Sunday at Federal Hill Commons. It's going to be great. The weather's going to be much nicer than it is today. Uh, please be praying for that. It's going to be uh, awesome. It's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to next weekend. I was just uh, kind of wandering around between services, and people kept coming up to me saying, where's, where's the baptism class? I need to get to the baptism class. And I'm like, oh, here you are. And then I turn around there. Hey, is this where the baptism class is? I don't know. how. There's like 100 people in there right now. I don't think that's true. I think there are maybe six. Uh, but we have a lot of baptisms for next weekend, and I'm really excited for that. Unfortunately, I won't be here. I feel so bad I'm going to miss next weekend. But I'm doing something exciting, too, that I wanted to tell you about. I am running a race called Hood to Coast next weekend. Now, if you're not familiar with Hood to Coast, uh, this is the course. It's in Oregon. It starts at the top of Mount Hood at Timberline Lodge, and it goes 199 miles to the coast at Seaside, Oregon. Now, I'm not running all 199 miles. I've got uh, 11 of my cool World Vision friends that are running it with me. Uh, and uh, over the course of the two days it'll take us to get there, there'll always be somebody on the road. I'm going to be crammed into a van uh, with six guys that have just finished running, so you can imagine what that's going to be like. Um, but over the course of the two days or so it's going to take us, uh, I'll run about three legs, about 17, 18 miles, something like that. And it's all, besides to help stay fit and have fun, it's all uh, raising money for World Vision, Team World Vision uh, for uh, water sanitation and hygiene projects in South Sudan. Now, if you don't know about South Sudan, it is the newest country in the world. Um, and if you want to follow my journey, I just want to encourage you to uh, follow me on Instagram. I'm at Steve Wallen, and I don't usually plug for followers, but I know a lot of you are questioning, like, what are you doing? When's this race? What's it about? And I'm not on social media nearly as much as I used to. I'm not on Facebook very much at all. I'm pretty much done with Twitter. I've deleted my Twitter account um, or stopped logging or logged off of it everywhere. Uh, but I do still post on Instagram occasionally, and I use stories uh, sometimes when I do big events like this so that people can be aware. So if you want to know more about what that, uh, follow me there. Uh, I am my real authentic self on Instagram, though. I want you to know I only have one Instagram account, which maybe puts me in the minority because I know that a lot of you uh, teens and next gens, you've got your Rinsta and your Finsta and your spam and all that. And uh, I've been become aware of this phenomenon because I have teenage girls about the Finsta account. Finsta stands for fake Insta or fake Instagram. And ironically, the Finsta is the place that people feel like they can be the most real on Instagram. And so while your, your real Instagram or your Rinsta, you might have hundreds or even thousands of followers and there you post the carefully curated pictures with you and at the golden hour with your makeup and your hair all done properly, you know. Your, your Fensta, your fake Insta, you might, maybe you've got eight to 10 followers on that. And it's just your very closest friends. And that's where you can post the photos when you weren't quite ready for the picture, uh, or you were making the face, the rando face, you know, that you have, or um, you didn't quite have all your hair put together, or like it shows your double chins and things like that. So the fence to the fake Instagram, ironically, is the place people feel like they can be the most real, true, authentic self, because almost nobody's paying attention. And while most of us probably have moments in our life where we wish we could be somebody else or we could pretend to be someone else, what we're going to see from today's scripture is this, that our real identity is who we are when no one is watching. So if you've got your Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these in the back of the room. And if you don't own a Bible, I want to invite you to take this with you uh, because we are reading through the Bible together this year as a church um, and if you're a guest with us today or just checking us out, I want you to know that we've been reading our way through the whole Bible in this year-long series we're calling Planted. 
Uh, we're calling it planted because Psalm 1 says of the person who, is, who meditates on God's law day and night, that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. And so that's basically been our hope and our prayer for this year, that we, as individuals and as a church family, that we could get planted in the word of God, uh, that we're growing deep roots in the Lord, that we're knowing him better and loving him more and gaining a deeper understanding of his will and his desire for our life. And so if you've not been reading along with us, I want, you to, I want to tell you that you are at an ideal place to start because this week, actually Tuesday and two days on August 24th, we all get a new start. We are going to start reading through the New Testament on August the 24th. And so uh, download the Read Scripture app if you don't have that on your phone or your device. Or pick up a reading plan at the Info Hub. We've got some hard copies out there. Or you can always go to our website, genesischurch.me. You'll find a planted tab there. You can go there and you can download the reading plan. And get yourself planted in God's Word. But on our preaching calendar here, we've taken a little detour, a little breather in the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel's a pretty short book. Uh, it's one of the, near the end of the Old Testament, um, but it's a pretty short book. It only took us four days to read through it, but we've spent now four weeks uh, preaching through it because it's filled with some great life lessons. And so we've taken four weeks to talk about it on Sunday mornings. And uh, today is the last week in our series, and we're going to talk about the one story that you've probably all been waiting for. So, and it's uh, the story that most of you probably know about Daniel, even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you've never read the Bible. If I were to say to you, what do you know about Daniel from the Bible? You would probably say, lion's den, right? The lion's den. I like, have been here three weeks. I haven't seen a single lion. What is going on with this book about Daniel? Well, today is your day. If that's you, today is your day. Daniel got thrown into a den of lions and survived. Spoiler alert. Um, so what could you possibly learn from this story that you didn't learn in Sunday school, that you didn't learn from popular culture, that you haven't learned from VeggieTales or any place else that you might read your Bible? Well, I don't know, but let's dig in and let's find out. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Daniel 6, 1 says this, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Now let's just stop right there and say, who's Darius? <laughs> you know, we've been reading about these kings and it's usually uh, somebody named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, who is Darius? Well, in Daniel chapter 5, Darius becomes king of Babylon. So since Daniel's been in Babylon, we've now had five kings. We had Nebuchadnezzar 1, Nebuchadnezzar 2, Nebuchadnezzar 3, who we talked about last week, who was also known as Nabonidus. And then in uh, chapter 5, we learn about Belshazzar, who if you blink in Daniel, you'll miss him, but he was one of the kings, and now we have Darius. Well, what the heck happened? Well, if you uh, had read through Daniel chapter 5, what you know is Belshazzar, who was king there, uh, had a big party. He had a big uh, shindig. There was lots of drinking, lots of food. He, there was some writing that appeared on the wall. And Daniel, this man, Daniel, uh, was brought in to interpret for him. All the king's men, all his seers, all his prophets couldn't interpret it. And so he brought in this, this Jewish man, Daniel. Uh, I'm saying man because here's something that you, your Sunday school teacher might have gotten wrong. If you uh, saw the flannel graph up on your Sunday school board or if you heard this story, you might have pictured Daniel as a very young man, as a teenager. And that was true. When he came into the kingdom, he was a young man. But he's now outlived five kings. And so if we just look at the history of the kings of Babylon, what we see is Daniel was probably in his 80s, maybe in his early 80s by the time this story takes place. So mark that image out of your mind, okay? Uh, but uh, during this party, there's this writing on the wall and all of the king's prophets and seers couldn't solve it. And so he hears about this Jewish man named Daniel and he brings Daniel in and Daniel says, oh king, 
Let me tell you what this writing means. It means that God has uh, numbered your days. You have been weighed and found lacking and that your kingdom is coming to an end and it's going to be turned over to the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar, the king, was so in awe of Daniel's interpretation that he promotes him to third in the kingdom. He's one of these uh, leaders in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar died and the kingdom was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And so now we come to Daniel chapter 6 and is being ruled by Darius, who was a Mede. Now, the Medes uh, were a people who lived in Persia in modern-day Iran, and they tended not to be too far to the right or to the left. They were right down the middle, just like a Median should be, right? Math, math jokes never work. Like, I don't understand it. I don't... Uh, Darius, but he's from an area called Media in Persia, and he may or may not be the one that we find out in other books is called Cyrus the Great. Uh, we don't know if he's the same person or not, but uh, Darius becomes king in chapter five. So Darius, uh, when he becomes king, he's impressed with this management team that Belshazzar has put in place. So he kind of leaves them in place, Daniel and other people on his staff. And so here's what happens. But it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel's pretty high up in the kingdom. Uh, The satraps were made accountable to them uh, so that the king might not suffer loss. In other words, these people were put in place to make sure nobody's stealing from the kingdom, from the king's treasury. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now there's something about Daniel that stands out to this king. So this Mede comes into this kingdom in a different culture with the Babylonians. He looks out at all the Babylonians and then he sees this Jewish man and he says, there's something about exceptional qualities about this man. In fact, the King James Version says that Daniel had an exceptional spirit. In other words, there was something about the way he conducted himself. There was something about the way he lived his life that looked different from the other leaders in Babylon. And so King Darius wants to elevate him to be second in command over the whole kingdom. And this is what happens, by the way, when God's people live in accordance with God's law, right? People take notice for the right reasons. They say there's something special about that person. There's something good about that person. We see this again in in the New Testament in Acts chapter two, when it talks about the church and it says the church earned the favor of all the people, that there was something about the church that even the people who didn't believe in the same God, that didn't know anything about Jesus, that certainly didn't worship in the same way that the church did, that the people from outside the church looked at the church and said, there's something about the way they live that we want to duplicate, that we want to replicate. We want to live like that. We like those people. We may not believe what they believe, but we want them to be our teachers. We want them to marry our daughters. We want them to be our neighbors, right? And so there's something about that. When God's people live God's way, something special happens. There's some integrity that happens there. Now, when God's people become hypocrites, the world sees that too. But what's happening here is that God's person, Daniel, is living with integrity. He's following God's law. And so King Darius decides to put him over the whole kingdom, effectively making him second in command to the king himself. Now, what you probably know, what you probably have gained an understanding in life is that sometimes the second in command is really the one that's in charge, right? I mean, if you're in England and you want to get something done, you don't go to the queen, you go to the prime minister, right? The prime minister knows how to get things done. Uh, if, even if you're in a business, you know, you don't bother the CEO with stuff, but you go to the vice president who knows how the business actually works, 
right? Yeah, when I was in school, if we got in trouble, we didn't go to the principal's office. You went to the principal's office because you were getting an award or something. You go to the vice principal's office and you start shaking in your boots, right? Second in command is often, even in a place like the local church, sometimes the person in charge is really just a figurehead, just a pretty face. It's the second person in command that really gets things done and knows, please don't tell Paul I said that. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. So Daniel, this outsider, is put over the whole kingdom. And that's not going to sit well with the other king's advisors. Verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his contact of, contact, conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against the man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They look at Daniel's life. And they say he's innocent. There's nothing that we can find that is going to get him in trouble. So they decide they have to lay a trap. So here's what they do. They go to King Darius and they ask him to issue a decree. And the decree would be that if anyone who is caught praying to any God or any person other than the king in the next 30 days, that they would be thrown into a den of lions. Uh, And then... uh, that's what they do, and so uh, Darius agrees to do that. And I don't think it's because he's claiming deity here. He doesn't think he's God. But just think about this. You've got this new king coming into this new kingdom, and he's got all these different people groups, the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians, and then this remnant of Jewish exiles that he's trying to unite together as one. And he thinks, hey, maybe this would be a good way. All these guys are worshiping their different gods and their different idols and their different people. Maybe if we don't have them all worship and, and pray to different people, that would be a way to unite the kingdom. I think that's what Darius is thinking here. But the, the administrators take it one step for, further and they get him to write it down, put it in writing. Because here's the thing. We know that the law of the Persians and the Medes, if once it's in writing from the king, it can't be changed, right? We learned this in Esther. If you remember in the book of Esther, uh, if you go back, that the king's decree to kill all the Jews in the land, which Haman had him do, he had him put it in writing and stamp it with the king's seal because then it couldn't be changed. So even when the king found out that his queen and one of his best advisors were Jewish people, the king couldn't change his own, uh, he couldn't revoke his own law. So that's what happened. So their trap is set and it works just as anticipated. Verse 10 says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Now, this phrase is really key, just as he had done before, because it indicates to us that Daniel was consistent in his habits, right? And there's something really, really important about consistency of habits. How did the king's advisors know that their trap was going to work? Well, because Daniel was consistent in his habits. He was praying there every day. Three times a day, he would turn toward Jerusalem and pray. And in and, and, and those days, many Jews did. In fact, today, uh, many Jews still turn toward Jerusalem when they pray. And Daniel did this consistently. Three times a day, the Bible tells us he would open his window no matter what was happening in his life. And he would go to God for help. Good or bad, things happening good in his life or bad in his life, Daniel knows, I got to turn to the Lord for help. And so, He was consistent. That's who he was, even when no one was looking. So what can we learn from this? I think it's that it can be really important to be consistent in our habits. So for many of us, we can experience uh, closeness with God when we're in a regular routine of prayer and scripture, right? We have to make a regular time and place for studying our Bibles. 
we feel good. We feel uh, normal. We feel enriched, right? We feel full. And when we get out of that routine, it feels weird. It feels off. But there's something that we can't quite place that's not right because we're not in our routine of prayer or of scripture reading. And uh, so it's just important. To, so if, 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 if prayer for you is a, is a bone of contention that you have, that you've got to work out with God, uh, it's important to pray every day, not just when you need something, right? We all have that friend that whenever they call, we go, oh, I wonder what they want now, right? They're always calling because they need something. We don't want to be that for God. We want to be the people that are always calling just to check in. How are you doing? We're, we, regular, habitual prayer, consistent prayer. That's what Daniel was doing. Maybe for you, your prayer life's good and your scripture life's good, but maybe it's giving for you. You just know that when you get that new job, when you get that promotion, when you get your student loans paid off, you're gonna start giving regularly to the church or to that organization you believe in, to that cause that you believe in. Uh, But the truth is, if you're not making space in your budget and in your heart to give now on a regular basis, just when you get more money, you're not gonna start doing that. In fact, I gotta tell you from experience, it's a lot easier to give 10% of $30,000 a year than it is to give 10% of $100,000 a year. It's just math, right? So you gotta make that a consistent habit now. Or if you're dating, maybe you're dating someone and you think, you know, while I'm dating, I'll sleep around, I'll have some fun. And then when I finally meet Mr. Wright or when I finally meet Mrs. Wright, then I'm gonna get my act clean up. But by then it's too late. You've already kind of established who you are when nobody's watching. You have to consistently practice the behavior so that it become now, so that it becomes a habit later in your life. You know, Daniel was consistent in his prayer habit, so naturally he got caught. And the king's court is just giddy with anticipation once they find out this is happening. You can just see them on the way to the palace arguing over who is the lucky one that gets to tell King Darius. Oh man, I can't believe it. I get, we get to tell the king that Daniel's been caught. And so they come to the king and here's what they do. They say, uh, we're gonna skip down a little bit. They say, king, didn't you issue a decree that no one should pray to any God or any person except for you, your majesty? They know he said that. And they said, king, didn't you say that anyone who violated this decree would be thrown into a den of lions? Yeah, that's what he said. And king, didn't you put your decree in writing so that it could never be revoked, not even by you, your majesty? Yes, he did that. Oh, your majesty, we are so, so sorry to tell you that your servant Daniel has been praying to his God. And verse 14 says this. When the king heard this, He was greatly distressed and he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now, as you hear this story, you might be thinking in your mind that there's a lot of similarities between this story and the story we talked about two weeks ago of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into a fiery furnace. And in both cases, these men were guilty of worshiping the one true God. In both cases, these men were There was a punishment that was coming to them that could mean death for these men for their disobedience to the king and obedience to God. Uh, But two things make this story unique. First of all, uh, we've learned two weeks ago that King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they failed to bow down to the king. And here we see that King Darius is greatly distressed. Like he really likes Daniel. He thinks he's a good leader and a good man. And he's greatly distressed. I think he's distressed, not just because of what this means for Daniel, but I think he realizes that this was a trap, that the men in his administration set a trap and that the king was 
part of the one, one of the ones who was trapped. Like he got fooled by these men and he looks around at his administration. And he says, Daniel is the only one that has any integrity. The second thing that makes this different is while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were punished for what they did in public, Daniel here was being punished for what he did in private. You know, that, that he was in his private room behind closed doors and Daniel showed integrity by doing the right thing even when no one was looking. Verse 16 says this. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and they threw him into a lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now, you know the rest of this story. I don't have to tell you. Daniel spends the night in the pit with lions. The Lord shuts their mouth. Daniel comes out the next morning. It's a miracle. He's unharmed. But again, in parallel to what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the men who falsely accused Daniel die because of their false accusations. They get thrown into the pit with those very same lions. And just to show that it wasn't that the lions just weren't hungry, these men and their families are killed for their plotting against Daniel. So if these lions were really hungry, they're really there, why was Daniel saved? Well, there's this great phrase in his response to the king, and it's one that I think kind of foreshadows what we're gonna see in the New Testament in the next few weeks as we start reading it, when Jesus comes along. After Daniel's night in the lion's den, the king comes in the morning, probably reluctantly, and you see him yell down into the pit, Daniel, have you been saved? Has your king saved you? Has your God saved you? And uh, this is what Daniel says in verse 22. He says, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. He was found innocent in God's sight. And that word that's translated here as innocent is the Hebrew word zaku. Now, zaku is a word that's only used one time in all of scripture. And it's attributed to Daniel. It's, uh, it means literally to be innocent or uh, to be pure in God's sight. Now, let's take a moment and compare what's said here about Daniel with what was said back in verse 4 when the administrators and the satraps were trying to find a way to get to Daniel. It says they're looking down and it says they looked down and they could find no corruption in him. In this case, God is looking down at Daniel and declaring him innocent. Now, we can very easily look at those two phrases and think they're talking about the same thing, right? That, that Daniel's a good man who did good things and because he's a good man who did good things that he's innocent in the eyes of the Lord. It makes sense, right? But it's not the same thing. And I want you to think about this for yourself and you only have to answer this for yourself. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to say it out loud. I don't even want you to tell the person next to you. But when you look deep down into your heart at your deepest motivations, would you say that if you had to choose one, you would rather please people or please God. Because that's the difference here. The, the people are looking at Daniel and finding no corruption in him, and that's one thing. And then God is looking in Daniel's heart and declaring him innocent, and that is another thing entirely. We know, we've seen in Scripture that man sees what's on the outside, and God looks down into the heart and sees what's on the inside. So when you look at your life, would you rather be innocent in front of people or in front of God. I'm not just talking about randos on the internet. I'm talking about the people you love and know you best, your friends, your family, your spouse, your significant other, your kids. Your deepest motivation to be good in the eyes of people or to be innocent in the eyes of God. See, we can confuse the two. We can easily confuse the two. We can think, if I live a good life, if I just do enough good things, 
if I don't do enough, if I avoid enough bad things, that when I get to the end of my life, God is going to look at me, the sum of everything that I've done, and declare me innocent. I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. I've avoided the bad things. I've done some good deeds. I've probably been good enough to earn the favor of God. But here's the problem with that. How good is good enough? Do I have to get an A? I mean, if we were to take the weight of everything that we've done in our lives, the good and the bad, and put them on a balance, does it have to be like 90%, uh, 90-10, and that way I get an A, and then I'm able to spend eternity with God in heaven? Is that the way it works? Uh, and if so, is it graded on a curve? Like, <laughs> am I comparing myself to other people? Because really, when I compare myself to other people, I'm pretty good. I would say that most of us, the average person would say that they're better than 90% of the other people they know, right? And so is it 90%? Is that the rule? Well, what if I've never been really that good? I mean, is a B plus good enough or a B minus? Or, or what if I've done so much bad in my life to this point that if I started today and only did good things for the rest of my life, I could barely get up to 60%. I mean, is that gonna be good enough? Ds get degrees, right? And so if I'm able to get up to a D, like, is that good enough in the eyes of God? And what's the answer? How good do you have to be? And by the way, how unloving would God have to be to have this hidden grading scale and never tell us what it is? How cruel would that be? And then we just have to guess and hope and, and pray. And then when we die, then we find out if we were good enough or not. Well, that's not fair. Well, hey, I've got some bad news for you. You're not good enough. And you can never be good enough. You can't possibly be good enough to earn your way to heaven. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear that encouraging news? That Romans 3.23 says it this way. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And all means all. All means everyone. Even Daniel, who was found innocent in God's sight. And who, by the way, is one of the, I don't know if you've thought about this. He's one of the few people in the Old Testament that we see that we don't see really any bad things that he did. We don't have a record of Daniel's bad habits or sin life, right? But Daniel, who's one of the very few people that we don't see anything bad about, he sinned. He fell short of God's glory. How do I know? All have sinned and fallen short. You're not the exception. I'm not the exception. Everyone. And, and I'm here to tell you, though, that there is good news that comes with this because the very next verse says this, Romans 3.24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's right, friends. All of us have the opportunity to be justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ, that through his sinless life and his atoning death on the cross and his miraculous resurrection from the grave, that even those of us who have corruption down in us, we can be saved. We can be rescued. We can be redeemed by the enormous grace of God through faith in Jesus, but only through faith in Jesus. See, if we keep to the standard of trying to live a good life, trying to be a good person, we are going to fail because God's standard is perfection. In fact, the apostle James, the, the brother of Jesus said it this way, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So we can try. We can try to be good. In fact, there's no harm in being a good person. I would say that people who do more good things than bad are happier. They live longer. They have less stress and anxiety in their life from having to cover their tracks of all the things that they've done wrong. But what I'm saying is don't count on your good deeds to earn you favor with God, to earn you eternity with God. Maybe you heard the story of Ivan Sejidin. He was a 
vaunted race car driver from New Zealand, and he loved driving fast. But there was a problem. He did not love wearing his seatbelt. <laughs> so uh, within five years on the roads of New Zealand, he got ticketed 32 times for not wearing his seatbelt. Well, he decided that he'd had enough. Uh, and so what was he going to do? Well, he was going to try to fool the police. So he created a fake seatbelt, which he tied to his normal seatbelt up above his shoulder, and he let, had a strap that just laid gently across his chest. So it always looked like he was wearing a seatbelt. So whenever he drove by a police officer, it looked like he was wearing his seatbelt. And that worked for a while. He didn't get ticketed anymore until one day Ivan had a head-on collision and was thrown into his steering wheel and killed. Here's the point. What is fake won't save you. You're going to church to try to earn favor with God, it won't save you. You're giving money to important causes that you believe in to try to rack up some brownie points with Jesus, it won't save you. The Bible teaches us that all of us, at the end of our lives, every one of us in this room, we're gonna stand before God someday and he's gonna look at the whole of our lives and judge us based on what we did. And that when we give our lives to Jesus, when we call on him as our sole hope for salvation and our relationship with him is the only thing that we're counting on, then we are made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now for those of us who are in Christ, when God looks down into our hearts at what's on the inside, he no longer sees our bad habits and our sin and our rebellion. He sees Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus is given to us, that Jesus is our arbiter. He's our, he's our advocate that on that day when you finally stand before God and God is listing off all of the sin in your life, you can picture Jesus standing right beside you saying, nope, don't count that one. I paid for that one. Nope, I've got that one. Nope, that's mine. I've already paid for that. I've already covered that. I've done that. I've taken care of it. It's finished. It's paid for. It's done. That is the righteousness of Christ in us then God can look at our hearts and declare us innocent, just like Daniel. Now, if you never made that decision to, to make Jesus the head of your life, to declare him as Lord, don't wait any longer. He's patiently waiting for you to come back to him. Now, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If that's something you've never done, we're gonna pray now. And if you want your eternity to be secure in him, come see me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that, pray with you about that get you signed up for baptism, whatever it takes to help you take that next step towards finding your way back to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this, the story of Daniel and the way that you show us uh, through your word how we can be saved and may, be made righteous. And Lord, just thanks for the reminder that it's not about anything that we're going to do or not do. Uh, we love you. We're thankful for the work of Jesus and his perfect life, sinless life, his atoning death on the cross and his miraculous resurrection. And we, we claim that for ours, Lord. We know that uh, you tell us that we can have his righteousness because of that. God, for anyone in this room right now who is already in Christ, I just hope today is a great reminder for us that we can't earn our way with you. But for those who are not, Lord, I just pray that you're working in their hearts, that you would help them to see that you are calling out to them, that you want them to find your way, their way back to you, Lord, that you are waiting for them patiently like a good father that you are to come back. Father, when they do, we're going to give you all the praise and all the glory for that. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.